All right, everyone, we are going to uh, go on and get started. Because we have a smaller group, I probably wouldn't do this if it was packed, but because we have a smaller group, I want everyone to introduce themselves. I'll begin, and then we'll just go around the room, and I think that'll make this a little more intimate. And then after we do that, I'm going to try to talk, not really fast, but I'm going to try to go through the slides fairly uh, rapidly, because I want us to do this time what I wasn't able to do last year when I presented some of this material, and that's actually here from you. Because one of the, one of the really important ideas in um, all preaching, uh, but since my experiences with African-American preaching, is that there is an existential, personal, or experimental element to it. If you eliminate the personal, you're talking about something else. You're not actually talking about uh, African-American preaching. So uh, we'll start over here. Introduce yourself. Oh, everybody knows you. Introduce yourself. And, uh, My name is Amy Bostenegger. I am one of the ministers at the Manhattan Church of Christ in New York City. And I'd like to say one of the reasons that I'm in here, other than the fact that I just like to learn from David, is um, I just finished a year ago a Doctor of Ministry degree at New York Theological Seminary, which is a um, about 50% African American. And my two primary professors are African American women. And um, I just feel like God um, has put me in a place in my life where um, I, I'm learning from the African American church. Yeah. And I'm so, I'm just really blessed by that, by that opportunity. Well, really quick advertisement. Uh, she gave the most powerful keynote, was it last year? Two years ago. Two years ago yeah. in the morning for the Pepperdine lectureship. Mm -hmm. Look her name up. Look up uh, Pepperdine Lecture 2017. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the most extraordinary uh, sermons I've ever heard. I preached on Esther. So yeah, you can, was, you, you can like, find whoa. it on, on YouTube. It's on, um, if you look at it. It was bold and brash, but we're not here to talk about you. Wonderful you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It was a, one of the most amazing things I've ever Thank heard. You. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, me? Oh, my name, <laughs> my name is Mashani Allen. I currently work at Pepperdine. This is my first year. Um, being able to attend these. I'm actually an ordained prophet at um, my church in Whittier, California. Wonderful to have you here. And I'm still listening to some of her tapes. She blows my mind every time I come oh. to the office. This knowledge. And I'm actually stealing, plagiarizing some sermons from her. Uh, I'm Stephanie Stewart from San Francisco Bay Area. Um, this is maybe my ninth time at the lecture shows. My daughter, uh, Took your class, graduated from here, class of 2014. What was her name? Carmen Stewart. Of course. Tell us what's up. My name is Caitlin. Uh, this is my first time here. It's been wonderful. And I'm from the Seattle area. Welcome, Caitlin. All right. Y'all students, but go on and I'm Rachel. I'm working the Harvard Lectures and making sure technology runs well. But I'm excited to sit in on this lecture. <laughs> I'm Karen Grace. I'm also working the lectures, recording. That's it. <laughs> so anything we say can be held against us. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm Patricia Dees. I'm a member of the Crenshaw Church of Christ. Um, retired, and now I have become a gospel song writer and, Ooh. of course, singer. Nice. Lovely voice, lovely person. Irene Key. I attend Crenshaw Church of Christ in Los Angeles. Um, but 
esthetician, and I'm retired uh, about 12 years, which is wonderful. God's <laughs> blessed me so much with retirement. Um, and David, I'm here because I'd love to hear you speak, but I've only heard you speak in the pulpit. Oh. And, and you, you were tortured, Trinca, you, and you were tortured that way. Decided to come and, yeah, and see if you know anything's different. If you've grown any, you know. That well, happens. there's a lot of growth, so don't 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 expect you know leave your expectations low. Yeah. And I'm Adrian Williams, also a member of Crenshaw Church of Christ. I'm still working, but we saw David last year, and it's always good to see David. Yeah. And I want to say this is my first time here. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh. So I'm, I'm really taking all of it. In. So uh, I said I was going to introduce myself first, but I didn't. Uh, and some of that I'll blame on, and don't you guys say anything, because I know what you're going to say when I say this. Some of that I'm going to blame on turning 57, Lord willing, this Sunday. Nice. Uh, I, just, I just seem to be forgetting like more things. <laughs> Unless it has to do with research or whatever I'm doing, then I, you can't shake me up if you ask somebody. So David Holmes, um, been preaching, and I'll say a little more about that in a second, since I was 14 years old. I started preaching at the Normandy Church of Christ, and so I've been preaching a lot since then, obviously. I've been a professor here for 25 years, and if my wife doesn't kill me before next month, we will have been married for 32 years. And our older son, Jonathan, lives in Chicago, and Lord willing, in July, uh, uh, we're going to be first-time grandparents. Oh, so this, this uh, discussion is very personal to me. Uh, it's called Let the Church Say Amen. Uh, and this presentation is primarily about my faith. And by faith here, of course, I'm referring to not belief in a system. I'm sort of beyond that. It's the kind of things that you can say on tape, but you don't say a lot in the pulpit. I'm less interested in rules and system. I'm much more interested in relationship. Mm -hmm. And as you'll see in a moment, that is a challenge that we see not only in African-American churches of Christ, that's a challenge we see in white churches of Christ as well. This idea of, are we really seeking a relationship that will produce a certain kind of conduct? Are we setting up rules for conduct that will influence that relationship? So this is about my faith. Faith in the sense of complete trust. Trust that develops into a hope against hope. And, and my faith will be manifested in three parts of this presentation. Number one, spiritual heritage. We all have a spiritual heritage. We could call it uh, a spiritual autobiography. Sometimes we don't think about it. Often we don't journal about it. Some of us journal about it or reflect on it. But we really need to reflect on our spiritual heritage and our spiritual autobiography. So this presentation is going to talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, as of the past 10, 12 years, I've really been looking at faith in relationship to my research. Now, we know that the Bible teaches us, and our parents have taught us, whatever you do, you should do to the glory of the Lord. But sometimes in academia, that's not always an easy thing to do. Uh, for example, you'll see academics, and there have been academics, who will talk about the importance of the rhetoric and the history of the civil rights movement, and yet fail to mention the black church once. My book I'll talk about a little bit later is a book that I decided not to submit to a university press because I wanted the last chapter to be my testimony. 
that I'm not researching the civil rights movement just because I feel like researching a topic. I'm researching it because it's a part of my vocational journey. Those are the kinds of things that we struggle with. But I'm older. I'm not old. Y'all don't get me. I'm older, and, I, and I've really become spiritually thick-skinned mm. about the, the cr criticism that other academics may have about me talking about Jesus too much, okay? They can step off talk to the hand. Cause I'm not um, and then, of course, this presentation is about faith and, fe and my fellowship. And by fellowship tradition here, I, of course, mean uh, the churches of Christ. Could you close that? I mean churches of Christ, because that's my faith tradition. That is what shaped me, right? So that, that is what has caused me, in some ways, to be an academic. So what I'm trying to say is there was once upon a time when my spiritual heritage and my research and my fellowship were in different compartments. They no longer are compartmentalized. I'm looking for more connections. I'm looking for more organic links. I want to make it natural. I figure because I'm, I've been bald-headed for a number of years, if I can't have a natural, hey, or an afro, I might as well try to be natural. Okay. So let's talk about the first one, my faith heritage. I have this you know, not powerful, but powerful enough idea uh, that you've probably heard in different manifestations. God's providence prepares us for our place in the world. God's providence prepares us for where we need to be. That's what we tell our students at Pepperdine. We talk about service, purpose, and leadership. You're not here by accident. God's providence is God providing for you in difficult times. And so it was with my faith heritage. Can you guess which one is me? I want you to take a look at a second uh, which one is me. This is, this is me and three of my siblings. My older brother Michael, my younger brother Stephen, and my uh, younger sister Angela. Which one <laughs> is me? The one at the bottom on the left. So here? Yeah. No. I'm saying, no. Here. How many of you say here? I saw the ears. Yeah. And how do you know? <laughs> the ears. You said the ears? Oh, yeah, they yeah. used to call me Frankenstein because my ears are like oh, way down here. Yeah. But, but the idea here, it made me think about this picture in particular. I was five years old. It was 1967. Critical moment in the civil rights movement, especially in terms of the transition uh, from uh, the more nationalistic kinds of ideas uh, away from the integrationist ideas, number one. But number two, it's also a critical moment in um, Churches of Christ. Not only because we had to reconcile ourselves to the slow pace we were making towards civil rights, but also we had to reconcile ourselves to the reality, as, as some have argued, that there starts to be a kind of um, theological split between the African-American churches of Christ and the uh, white churches of Christ around the 60s. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. So I, that's one of the reasons I picked this picture, because it's about 67. And then, of course, 1953. Why do I have this picture up here? I have it up for two reasons. This is my preacher, Carol Pitts, Nobody Church of Christ. This is his brother Josie, his brother uh, Doris. So it, it, it reminds me a little bit of my heritage. Uh, once again, when I got interested in the civil rights movement, the 50s and the 60s are vital. So that's one of the reasons I have this up here, because um, I'm working on my third book now. But my, my, my third book, uh, I'll talk about a little bit later, doesn't really d deal directly with Church of Christ preachers. The next book I'm going to write, Lord willing, is going to deal with a lot of the stuff I'm talking about now. Uh, the intersection between uh, Church of Christ preachers, uh, black and white, and particularly the theology about what we're going to look at here. 
And if you notice, and here's the second reason, not just that I have Carol Pitts, but the second reason is, look here, facts, commands, promises. I grew up, as some of you did, on that structure. Sometimes we'd say direct command, approve apostolic example, or necessary inference. Every once in a while, we thank God we bring the promises in there. But, but here's the point. This is, this is absolutely true in some ways, but it is limited. And I'm going to argue that this kind of structure comes from something that is outside of African-American religious culture. Now, whether it's right or not, you know, we can argue that it's right, but this uh, direct command, approve apostolic example, necessary inference, that's not, listen, African-American religious culture. We can argue whether it's Bible later, but it's not African-American religious culture, and that's going to make a huge difference, huge, huge difference as we go along. All right. So this is, of course, for the Normandy Church of Christ. Carol Pitts came to the Normandy Church of Christ when it was the Southwest Church of Christ. This, again, is a part of my faith heritage. He came there in 1963. Again, I'm connecting the dots, a critical moment for the civil rights movement. 1963 is Birmingham, uh, uh, the, the mass meetings. 1963 is uh, John Kennedy's assassination. 1963 is a lot going on, unbeknownst to me, because I would have been one year old at the time. But also there was the founding of the Normandy Church of Christ that had a tremendous impact on me. And the Normandy Church of Christ in 1963 started with 33 members. And by the mid-1970s, there were 1,200 members. Not 1,200 now, but 1,200 members. And so I always remember this little pamphlet that they showed us at various anniversaries. Because here's one of the bottom lines. Everything that I am obviously comes from God. But it is developed within the community of faith. And that's, that's the beauty of, of that relationship. Of course, and this is, of course, Carol Pitts founding of that uh, church, an initial gospel meeting. Some of these names, some of you may or may not recognize. But what I notice is uh, there is obviously some, some interracial stuff going on. Some of us will know Fannie Lewis, author, Perkins, African-American preachers, uh, Carol Pitts, but also, and Aaron Hogan, of course, but also you see Jack Scott and Michelle Nagai. There is what I call, for the most part, in the 60s, there's some exceptions. If you want to know about the exceptions of what the Church of Christ did during the Civil Rights Movement, one of the people you want to read is Richard Hughes, right? And then there's some other names I'll give later. But for the most part, I would characterize us during the Civil Rights Movement as hit and miss. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind about the Civil Rights Movement. There's a reason why I keep bringing that up over and over again. And just like an inductive preacher, just like one of those mysteries, I won't get there until we get to almost the end. To let you know why. Why does he keep bringing up civil rights movement, church of Christ, civil rights movement? What did it have to do with you know, the, the price of whatever and whatever? You'll see in a moment. And then, of course, uh, Calvin Bowers, uh, who some of you know him for the Figueroa Church of Christ. He was a professor at Pepperdine University. He was one of the first. I, I, I'm trying not to be emotional. As I get older, I get real emotional, so I'm going to say this fast so I don't get emotional. Calvin Bowers was one of the first people who modeled for me that you could be an academic and still be a gospel preacher. Mm -hmm. And whatever, whatever your critique might be or may not be of multiculturalism, whether you support it or you critique it, people need models that look like them. Yeah. People need models from their background. And so to see Brother Bowers 
being humble, and being dedicated to the Lord. It, it, it really got to me a lot because I knew some preachers who uh, you know, got their PhDs, they, if you wanted to call them PhDs, uh, fake PhDs who were more arrogant than Brother Bowers was with the real one. Brother Bowers was a beans and cornbread kind of man, so that was a model for me. And then Brother Bacchus, uh, even though he knew I couldn't preach, he let me preach when I was 16 years old. That's why he went there. Okay. So I, I talked about my faith and heritage. Let me talk about my faith and research for just a little bit. This is a quotation from uh, Albert J. Roberto, uh, a theologian, who says, I'm all too aware that reading about prophets does not automatically lead to action. As the old dictum says, those who can't do teach, but teaching and reading may lead to doing. Mm. So here's the part where we see a transition. There's my faith in my heritage and my background. And then there's my faith in research. And the key word, somebody say key word. Key word. Turn to your neighbor and say key word. <laughs> key word. The key word is prophet. We're talking about prophet and prophecy, right? And particularly the ways that I talk about it and others talk about it in their research. So this is my, uh, my, my second book, or my latest book, and I'm looking at the Birmingham Mass Meetings of 1963. April to May 1963 was one of the most critical moments of the Civil Rights Movement. For all, in terms of all historians, the Civil Rights Movement had uh, failed in Albany, Georgia. Uh, King and SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, had failed in Albany, Georgia, and had Birmingham not succeeded, the Civil Rights Movement would not have succeeded. Usually when people think of the Civil Rights Movement, they think of the dogs and water hoses as we, as we talk about. But this is what I do in this book. This book contends that prophecy ranks among the best frames to account for the ideological range, political traction, and primarily rhetorical effectiveness of the Birmingham mass meetings. By prophecy, I mean a spiritual, moral, conceptual, and pragmatic orientation to speak truth to power point out injustices and defend the marginalized. Well, that's just a fancy way of saying that prophecy speaks truth to power. Turn to the other neighbor and say, I'm going to speak truth to power. Okay, and so that, and, and so we, we, we remember Birmingham for the dogs and water hoses, don't we? Even if someone doesn't know anything about Birmingham, if they don't know anything about the civil rights movement, they know three things. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and dogs and water hoses, right? And so this uh, ha happened uh, on uh, May 2nd, uh, the uh, young people, uh, May 3rd actually, the young people got water hoses on them, school-aged children uh, by the hundreds uh, were taken to, to jail. And so obviously we know about King. Does anybody, I wish I had stars to give some people, does anybody know who this is? Who said it? Oh my goodness! I already knew you were deep and smart, but if I had gold stars, I'd give you gold stars. Ralph Abernathy was Martin Luther King's chief lieutenant, and he was also very active in the Birmingham mass meetings. I'm talking a little fast, so let me back up. Birmingham mass meetings went on for years under the leadership of Fred Shuttlesworth. But the Birmingham mass meetings in terms of the pinnacle and the climax and what we usually think about that transformed the movement, we're talking April, May 1963. Way back to the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955, um, Abernathy had been the companion of King and the support of King, and the one who actually nominated King to uh, be the president of the Montgomery 
uh, improvement in subsidization. So I talk about I talk about King and I talk about Abernathy, but let me back up real quick. So I'm going to take a second. I talk about King in terms of his eloquence, right? And it will not be long. How long? Not long. Because truth crushed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long. Because you will, you know, all of that, right? But Abernathy was the comedian. You know, Abernathy was the one that would say something really cutting, but he would say it in a, in a funny way. You know, like he'll, he'll say, they're talking about we can't be free down here uh, in, in, in the South. I, I believe in moving up to the North, but if the Negro is going to find his freedom, he's going to find it right where he's from, down in the South. Talking about going up to Chicago. I was there the other day. It's too cold up there to have freedom, you know. So, so he was this guy that was just really hilarious. But uh, at May 3rd, that, or May 3rd, that time when, the, when we had the dogs and water hoses, that night Abernathy arguably gave a stronger key, uh, speech than King did. Because what he talked about is how African Americans had been a part of every war and every struggle. So they deserve to be embraced as Americans. And again, that's something that I, that I mentioned in my book as well. Now, this is Fred Shuttlesworth. Fred Shuttlesworth was plum crazy. And he was one of those people that really stood up for his rights, even when other blacks found it of safety and necessity to be a little silent. His house was blown up twice. And when his house was blown up the first time, and this is before the Birmingham mass meetings, uh, an officer said to him, a Southern police officer came up to him and said, Reverend, if I were you, I would leave. Now keep in mind, this was a time when some blacks talked back, but a lot of them didn't. And so this is what Shuttlesworth said. Uh, officer, first of all, you're not me. And you go back and tell your clan brothers and sisters that if the Lord can bring me through this, the battle's just begun. The fight is on, and I'm going to be here for the duration. I remember interviewing Shuttlesworth when he was really sick uh, back in the early 2000s. I mean, he had to be like about this tall and maybe 145 pounds, if that, but a powerful preacher. And I talk about him and I talk about James Bevel. Both of these guys are what I call sort of non-conventional prophets. What I mean by that is they critiqued in ways that you normally wouldn't expect a preacher to critique. Usually we expect preachers to speak through what? It begins with an S. Sermons, right? Usually expect preachers to speak through sermons. Well, Abernathy illustrates, uh, not Abernathy, uh, Shuttlesworth illustrates how elastic the African-American preaching tradition is. The African-American preaching tradition in the churches of Christ, but particularly in the Baptist and Methodist churches, is flexible. You can get a sermon on anything. <laughs> so uh, Shuttlesworth would often do sermons from making announcements. <laughs> Literally. He would be making announcements, then he'd just start preaching. Right? And so that's, that's what I, I was looking at with him. That's Shuttlesworth. This is James Bevel, who's equally crazy. How, how do you spell this last name? Shuttlesworth? No, no, the other one. Bevel. Bevel. Yeah, it, 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 no, B-E-V-E-L. B-E-V-E-L. Yeah. And, um, uh, but anyway, so... So James Bevel, he's, he's really interesting because James Bevel was a part of the student movement. Everybody who was a part of the student movement wasn't a part of King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was a part of the student movement, uh, but he really emphasized grassroots. He was also the author of the um, Children's March 
When you had other African Americans who because of threat to life, adult African Americans who because of threat to life or threat of losing their jobs stopped marching, he was the one that came up with the Children's March Crusade. So he gives a sermon on April 12th. Y'all remember the letter from a Birmingham jail? So when Martin Luther King was in the Birmingham jail beginning in April 12th, he speaks at night, that night, and James Bevel basically argues that, listen, we have to make sure as grassroots members that we take our destiny, destiny into our hands. Leaders are wonderful, but even without leaders, God expects us to take our destiny into our hands. So I call him kind of a grassroots person. And I want to go through the others fairly quickly. But one of the, one of the arguments I made is, make is, and I'm not the only one who makes this, is that prophecy and biblical ideas are not restricted to the church or even Christians, right? Prophecy is a matter of critique. And so what I talk about here is I talk about uh, secular prophets. Uh, I talk about two of them. I talk about uh, uh, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP and James Farmer. Both of them were people who were kind of raised in religion, but really they became sectarian humanists. But even as humanists, they took advantage of the language of prophecy to critique. What language of prophecy? Micah chapter 6. And he's shown the old man what is good. But what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God? You don't have to be a Christian to offer that critique. And you certainly don't have to be a member of Church of Christ to offer that's that right. critique. And so that's, that's what I talk about there. And then, of course, I talk about, in my, in my second to last chapter, King on the one hand and Obama. Oh, I'm going too far ahead. King on the one hand and Obama on the other hand. This is the pointing to the assassin who, who failed King with, with his bullet. And this, of course, is the pointing of, to Obama. And basically, whatever you think about Obama, I basically argue that one of the reasons Obama had such a hard time is not just because he was black. He had a hard time because people thought that he was the fulfillment. Many have surveys done on this. Many African Americans and whites thought he was the fulfillment or evidence that King's dream had been achieved. Right, and, th and that's ridiculous. And that's a burden that you couldn't place on anybody. And to some, some extent, if you read some of Obama's speeches, and I talk about this in my book, if you read some of his speeches, he sort of promoted that idea himself about his relationship to King. Mm -hmm. But the idea that King's dream has been realized is ridiculous. And if you think King's dream has been completely realized, I got some property I can sell you for $10 an acre. It hasn't been. There's still a lot of uh, work to do. So um, that's my faith in my research. Now let's get to the fun part, and we still have time to play with this a little bit. Then there's my faith in my fellowship. At this point, for some reason, call me bizarre, I love being challenged in my mind and frustrated in my spirit. Because I'm not, I'm not leaving the Church of Christ. This, this is where I started. This is where I'm going to stay. This is where my sensibilities about art and literature and language were fostered. Long before I would read uh, the syncopated rhythms of Langston Hughes, I read the lyrical songs. Long before I read about uh, Zora Neale Hurston talking about going through the South and the Caribbean, I read about Jesus going through various towns of Judea and Galilee. This is who I am. And as 
as uh, you, you know, uh, Polonius uh, and, and Hamlet says to thine own self, be true. Uh, uh, Socrates says, know thyself. My grandmother used to say, be who you is, right? <laughs> this is who I am. And so I think about my faith and fellowship a lot. And there's some frustration that comes when I talk about my faith and fellowship. And one of the fr frustrations is related, related to this question. What is the relationship between restoration history and the black prophetic tradition? Real quick summary. Black prophetic tradition is about critique. The black prophetic tradition is about speaking truth to power, whether you find that power in the White House or in the doghouse. It's speaking truth to power wherever you find it, even if you find it in churches, especially if you find it in churches. Martin Luther King himself said, not every minister could be a prophet. And then one of the most powerful prophets of the 1960s was someone who was uh, agnostic and probably atheist, but he grew up in the Pentecostal church. He's a novelist by the name of James Baldwin. And James Baldwin has some scathing critiques of institutionalized white racism, and then what I would call, he uses a different word, relational black racism. Now, you know what institutional white racism is? Let me give you a real quick example of relational uh, uh, black racism. He talks about, uh, James Baldwin does, visiting with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad of the Nation of Islam. And he talks about how he could not agree with the assumption that the Nation of Islam used to have that whites were genetically devils. And of course, Baldwin really believed in having relationships with anyone who strove to be human. And so Baldwin says in the fire next time, as I was listening to Elijah Muhammad talk about whites being genetically devils, I was disturbed. But then I realized as he was talking, little did he know that right after I left that discussion, I was going to go to a bar and have a drink with a couple of devils. You know? In other words, he was saying there was no way that his relationship was going to be affected. But one of the most powerful statements uh, in the fire next time for me, very prophetic one, is Baldwin often talked about how your history, in particular your religion, blinds you to the reality of your racism. Frederick Douglass would talk about the same thing. Martin Luther King would talk about the same thing. How if you're not careful, your religious rituals will blind you to your racism. So this is one of the most powerful lines from Baldwin, and I actually gave it when I uh, was a keynote at uh, Abilene Lectureship years ago. It goes something like this. God should teach us to be more loving. If our God cannot teach us to be more loving, perhaps we should get rid of him. And I said that at Abilene Lectureship, in all these preachers, Amy. And it was like a mic drop. Because <laughs> I'm not saying get rid of God. Right. I'm saying get rid of a God that has your concept that it's okay to hate anybody because of the color of their skin. Yeah. That's prophetic. Yeah. It is rooted in religion, but it is not controlled by ritual. It is rooted in the church, but is not constrained by churchosity. Right? So when we talk about the relationship between the black prophetic tradition, we also have to talk about it in terms of, um, oh, what happened here? In terms of the restoration movement. And let me just see if this is going to help us move along. Hopefully it will. All right. Okay. So um, there are at least three books I want you to think about, but there's two I put up here. I already told you about uh, Richard Hughes. But this is one of Ed Robinson's book. Ed Robinson is a uh, African-American minister in the Church of Christ. He's written about, I don't know, five or six books 
on African American Church of Christ history. And in this one, he is talking about Marshall Keeble and R.M. Hogan and others. And he brings up this idea about how in the African American Churches of Christ, there continues to be uh, this emphasis on correct doctrine, correct ritual, correct structure, to the extent that that becomes the primary thing that you're talking about. That's Ed Robinson. Wes Crawford talks about something that's fairly obvious, but it should be brought up. Uh, uh, Wes Crawford talks about how that there was, there was always racism in the Church of Christ. That's not a newsflash. But his idea was that the racism developed uh, to such, should I press this or something? Um, I think because you accidentally pressed yes, it restarted, but it will come back. Okay. All right. <laughs> if, if not, it's almost time for us to talk anyway. Uh, but, um, and can you ch kind of check? Mm -hmm. That's why God put you here. So, um, <laughs> the Lord is calling you. He's, he's calling. And, and so, they, and, and if you need this, you can work with this. Oh, thing. yeah, no, it's just restarting. Okay. We're good. So, um, it'll restart in a second. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so uh, the other thing that he says is kind of interesting is how, how many of you know what the Christian church is by show of hands? Christian church. Do y'all know what happened in 1906? Sometimes Church of Christ will. Church Christ. Anybody know what happened in 1906? Okay. Well, no, I don't want to shake up anybody's faith. Before 1906, Church of Christ, the name Church of Christ, and Christian Church in the United States were used interchangeably. They had several battles. Among the battles were over instrumental music in a missionary society, right? But there were other battles as well. So in 1906, Someone gets a hold of Lipscomb, I believe, and ask him, well, you know, I see that there's uh, the U.S. Census ask him, I see there's this kind of division between these interchangeable groups, Church of Christ and Christian Church. And it's Lipscomb, among others, who says, well, they should be separated. So 1906, Christian Church, Church of Christ, and of course there's also Disciples of Christ, which is even more liberal. What, uh, do I have to put my password in? Uh, okay. <laughs> So, so, so what uh, he argues, what he being um, Crawford argues is, just as there had been a separation between the Christian church and the church of Christ, there is an equal separation between um, the uh, African American churches and the white churches. And one of the things he, he doesn't go into detail about, but one of the ways you guys can begin to trace this is to think about this. And you don't have to respond. I'll respond for you if you don't want to respond. So are we there? Or? Um, is it? Is yeah, I don't know why that's not done. Okay. But that's the Lord telling me to shut up. Um, was it on uh, your Google Slides? Or was it no, it was on, on PowerPoint? The, it's on PowerPoint. Okay. Well, it's going to. Yes. Yeah. I don't know why it switched to that. So you know what? It's on laptop. Is, are we switched to laptop? It should, it should yes. be here. I don't know why. Yeah, but it, the, it, it should be there somewhere. It's under PowerPoint? It should be up there somewhere. If not, we'll, we'll just say that it wasn't meant to be. Okay, so uh, do you see it? It's not there. Is this one? Ah, there it is. David's Harbor oh, Presentation. Oh, my bad, my bad. Okay, good. Thank you, Lord. Okay, but but so here's the argument very quickly. i got to give it to you very quickly. Um, are you there? All right, I'll just keep going. Okay, there we go. Okay, thank you so much. So can you just make it big and then we'll be good to go? 
Oh, right, oh, one. So no, you're fine. You're fine. Okay, good. Okay. Thank yeah. you so much. Give her a hand. Oh. <laughs> so, ba so basically, his argument, his being Wes Crawford's argument, is that just as the Christian Church and the Church of Christ uh, split in 1906, now we have a split between ideological, theological split between the white churches and the black churches. And here's one of the bases. If you talk to or read somebody like um, Tom Albright, he'll suggest to you in some, some of his books, one in particular that talks about his hermeneutic, that the white, white churches for the most part began talking about embracing grace in the late 70s through the early 80s. It was solidified in the 80s, right? Black chart churches, and I'm giving you a roundabout ballpark figure, started talking more about grace in late 80s to the 90s. Mm -hmm. right. White churches started focusing more on the redemptive work of Christ and so on, 60s and 70s. Uh, 70s. Black churches waited to do that. They were still focusing on um, ideas like the oneness of the church, this is what you have to do to be saved. Not that those ideas are not important, but that was the focus. Everybody understand what I'm saying? So there's a shift in the white churches to this more relational uh, connection with Christ in the church and less of the structural focus on salvation. So, so Wes Crawford is arguing that sooner or later, black churches and white churches are not going to just be racially separated, but they're going to be separated around those doctrines. Okay? All right. So what about the prophetic tradition? Are there, Af there African-American and, 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 and white American members of the Church of Christ who have been prophetic? Absolutely. You see some of them here. Aaron Hogan, we'll call you out in a second. Uh, Roosevelt Wells, uh, Franklin Florence, and of course, you have a very uh, young, much younger a picture, a picture of Fred Gray, who was, uh, was uh, the uh, attorney for Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, uh, assistant minister in the Church of Christ. Uh, you have uh, uh, John Allen Chalk, and you have Carl Spain. Carl Spain, who in, 19, in the 1960s stood up at the Abilene Christian Lectureship and basically said that uh, being a Christian and being a racist is inconsistent. Uh, that, that's uh, what Carl Spain said. John Allen Chalk, shortly after Martin Luther King was assassinated, he represented a prophetic word is a word that critiques. Right? It's a word that critiques and says, you know, I don't really care what the institution says. This is what God wants us to do. Yeah, go ahead. That was my question. How, yeah. are, how are you using that term, prophecy and prophetic words? So, so, so let me be very clear. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, I tried to give you the, the, the big academic answer. Let me give the bite-sized answer. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about prophecy here, we're not talking about foretelling, right. the future. We're talking about foretelling. We're talking about social political critique rooted in Christian values. Mm -hmm. So that's, 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 that's kind of what we're talking about here. It, so earlier, you made, I think you said that you don't necessarily have to be a preacher to do a prophetic critique? Yes, that's Correct. exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. Because, go ahead. So it's just a form of how you're... That's exactly right. I'm looking more... Okay. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. God sent you here. <laughs> it's, it, it's more about the... The structure, because by training, I'm, a, I'm an English professor and a, a rhetorician. So real, not to bore you, I'm interested in language in terms of narratives, symbols, and tropes, and arguments. 
So you can say just from a purely linguistic standpoint, there is a language, there is a vocabulary, there is a syntax for critique. That's what we're talking about. Okay. And thank you for that. What's your name? Stephanie. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take you on the road because you really helped me, Stephanie. Okay, so, so these men are, are, are from uh, the Churches of Christ, and uh, I, I know a, a little bit about these gentlemen from the history I've read. Uh, almost everyone up here except this gentleman I, I, I know personally. Eugene Lawton used to hold gospel meetings for us. Uh, Roosevelt Wells, who recently died. Orrin Hogan, I'm one of the associate ministers now at the Figueroa Church of Christ. So, I mean, you know, I know about all that. The challenge, I think, in the African-American church has been, and I've got to move real quickly here, has been balancing this obsession with doctrinal correctness with the social responsibility that comes from prophetic critique. Let me say that again. On the one hand, you're committed to making sure that everyone's right, and you should. You're committed to making sure that everyone follows the word of God. That's on the one hand, but then you recognize the responsibility to critique the culture because that's also very much a part of the African-American tradition. And I want to argue here for the few minutes we have left before you all start helping me out like Stephanie did, is that, let me just try to make this as plain as I can. The, the American Restoration hermeneutic does not lend itself to the black prophetic tradition. And I'll show you what I mean in a second. So there's some, these are some contemporary prophets. Do um, you guys know who this is? Mm -hmm. Who is that name? Donald Glove, and he prays, and he is. He is. <laughs> he's like, whoa! He's like this person who's like goes after Fox News. I think he might march around Fox News. And then, of course, Jerry Taylor is very prophetic in his preaching. Dwayne Winrow is, you know, prophetic at moments. Moments he's not. There's there's that tradition that operates here. But here's the challenge. There is a tense relationship between restoration hermeneutics and the black prophetic tradition. Restoration hermeneutics, we see Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, two very different people, but people we think about. Um, you, you ever wonder why we get to this? Uh, can I shake you up a little bit more before we leave? Uh, some of you already know this in your reading. We talk about stuff like um, direct command, prove apostolic example, and necessary inference. That comes from, primarily from Campbell, but it comes by way of the Westminster Presbyterian Confession of Faith. So we got our hermeneutic from the Presbyterians. Presbyterians, look and, at that. <laughs> okay, and, and not only is a Presbyterian, and I don't want this to sound racist, but is white Presbyterian. And white Presbyterian is a whole lot quieter than black Baptist. Can I get a witness? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, so even when you, for, for example, those of you who've been in African-American churches of Christ, if you haven't, this is going to sound really silly to you, and you hear people, I know you have because you sing, you're tapping your toe a little too much. You're clapping your hands. Don't rock. It's like, have you seen that I'm black? Have you noticed <laughs> that I'm black? And that might be a cultural thing going on, not just the spirit of God, a cultural thing might be going on. I had one brother real quickly who, a last church I preached for, who was talking about, no, you, you, can't, do, you can't do hand clapping. I said, and I knew why he was going to say it. Why? Well, because hand clapping is like instruments, and you're not supposed to use instruments. I said, okay, I'm not going to chase, chase that instrument rabbit. But this is what I did. I said, so what about when you tap your foot? Well, uh, well that's, that's on a carpet. And I leaned over and I said, God can't hear that. <laughs> right? But it, to put stuff in a box and to come up with a kind of rule list 
That's Campbell. Campbell wanted to have literally a constitution as a New Testament as a constitution. Why? Because that was the language of the 18th century, right? The constitution of the United States, the constitution of this culture. So it was very much this formula of religion that came from that. And then, of course, this is where, where the black stuff comes in real quick. Enlightenment categorical thinking not only restricted the restoration's hermeneutic, but that way of thinking was racist. And some people have pushed against me on this, but they're wrong, right? Whether you're talking about Immanuel Kant, whether you're talking about Hegel, or a whole lot of others during this time, and since I'm a rhetorician, I particularly look at people like George Campbell, no relationship to Alexander Campbell, as he talks about uh, national rhetoric. All of these guys pretty much assumed that Africans were mentally inferior. Mm -hmm. That was the assumption. So when they're making these arguments... Of the Enlightenment? Yes. Yeah. These guys assume... There are exceptions. David Hume is a perfect example of this. Thomas Jefferson sort of vacillated on whether blacks were culturally inferior or genetically inferior, because that was the argument. Blacks are genetically inferior, or they might be culturally inferior. Well, it's understandable why, why Jefferson was vacillating on that, because his mind was telling him no, but his body... <laughs> so, so it's understandable that he's kind of, he's kind of working, working through that a little bit. Okay, anyway, um, modernist culture assumed that what Europeans deemed informative, substantive, and rational was the only legitimate way of thinking. I had a big argument. Uh, and it, it's fun to be at a college because you can slam each other. One of my friends who does philosophy, and philosophy now is mostly analytical philosophy or analytic philosophy. He was talking about these structures that are universal. And I said, that doesn't work with West African syntax. The way you all set up an argument does not work with West African syntax, which lets me know what you say is a universal form of argument is actually an ethnocentric form of argument. Is that kind of confusing, y'all? It's the idea of, I'm saying to you that, that, uh, that uh, what, what they say, bacon ain't greasy. You know that bacon is greasy. So if I bring you bacon that's not greasy, you know that's not bacon. So, no. All right? So this is the point to ponder. To what extent is our hermeneutic racist? Because in the 18th century and 19th century, uh, rationalism and uh, it was a rationalizing against black equality. And you know, does anybody know where this is from? Django and Chain. Oh, yes. and, and the scene is where uh, Leonardo's uh, character is telling Jamie Foxx, well, you know, I know blacks are inferior because of the dimples they have on their skulls. That was a form of racist, uh, what we call pseudoscience, but they were very serious about it, called phrenology, right? So what, what, am I, what am I saying? People used what they considered to be reasonable arguments, whether they were from philosophy or science or what have you, to make racist kinds of ideas against blacks, to assume that blacks were uh, to be on the margins. So what, what does that mean? That means that by the time I'm going to fast forward here real quickly for the sake of time, by the time you get to like the 19... 20s and 40s and 30s and 40s, particularly, and you have very famous Church of Christ preachers like Foy Wallace, it's easy for him to embrace segregation. Why? Because he's caught up with a view of reason and a view of black people 
where they justify each other. It justifies being racist. Um, Foy Wallace was a very important preacher in the Church of Christ, a white preacher. At one time, he was very upset because people seemed to get more excited. White members of the church seemed to get more excited hearing Brother Hogan. And he was upset because some of the white women actually shook Brother Hogan's hand. And he was, well, that's unacceptable. Well, Brother Hogan didn't take any prisoners. He didn't suffer food gladly. Hogan said, he's just mad because he can't preach as good <laughs> You know, but just, you ever wonder why people can still be racist and embrace religion? It is rooted in their culture. All through the Civil Rights Movement, people justifying segregation, it is rooted in this kind of culture that we're talking about now, where somehow you think that blacks are not only different physically, but they're genetically inferior. Okay, so I don't want to talk about that. I actually want to stop here. And you know, I can send some of you this PowerPoint if you want. But basically, this is what, what I'm getting at. There's a disconnect. I'm trying to make this as simple as I can. There's a disconnect between African-American prophetic tradition and Church of Christ restoration hermeneutics because there's a disconnect between Enlightenment racism and black culture. So the same disconnect you see between the Enlightenment and black culture is also the disconnect you see between the prophetic tradition and uh, what we call restoration hermeneutics. So hermeneutics, by the way, is how you study of the Bible. Now I know that was like a whole lot. We have about like seven or eight minutes. I just want to get, I, I want to do with you all what I do with my students. Uh, you said you wanted this side of me. You got it. I want to do what I do with my students and I just want you to give me little threads that you have. There is no right or wrong answer. There's only input. There is no comprehensive summary I want. You know, no one's taking PhD comps exams right now. All I want from you is just uh, some of your input, some of your questions, some of your impressions. So input questions are impressions. Who wants to go first? Yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. So you mentioned about um, Obama uh, was viewed, or could be viewed, or he even viewed himself as the, the I had a dream came true, Martin mm -hmm. Luther King. Do you see, uh, and we know mm -hmm. that, no, the yeah. dream has not been realized. Mm -hmm. We still have a really long way to go. But within the churches of Christ, in particular, do you see any movement towards more unity? Is it, uh, or you know, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it still stagnant as far as uh, whites and blacks? White churches of Christ. Yeah. You yeah. know, you still say, oh, the white church of Christ yeah, yeah. and the black church yeah. of Christ. Like, is that ever going to not? be that way yeah. or is it any movement towards not being set we're just as segregated now as we were yeah. way back when so I'm not seeing any movement yeah. have you in the, the history seen yeah any movement? Th there are some efforts that, there have always been efforts made to some degree there are some efforts being made with people like Jerry Taylor and others and, and, and Don who are having like these really rich discussions but but and they're at different churches about how the races get closer together but I think there, there are always going to be two challenges. One is just the plain cultural difference. Mm -hmm. Stuff like black preachers preaching longer and louder, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But then this, the other thing I think that we have to really come to grips with is there's a consciousness, and it's not just the Churches of Christ, but since I'm a member, I can speak to this. There's a consciousness in the Church of Christ, 
not just African-American, but particularly African-American, where I'm too busy trying to watch whether you standing up and clapping or not mm -hmm. to deal with anything sub uh, substantive. Mm -hmm. To borrow from Paul, we're consumed with a form of godliness and we're denying the power. Mm -hmm. And so I think to answer your question, at least a partial answer would be, I think there is some movement, but th there's some, some real talk we have to do within our respective congregations about, for example, God is a Republican, because there's some, uh, you know, some brethren who think that, or God is a Democrat. The prophetic tradition, or the king tradition of prophecy would say, I'm going to put myself in a position where I can critique both. Mm -hmm. right. Just a really quick follow-up to that, though. Sometimes I wonder, like, is, is the segregation of the churches necessarily a bad thing? Is uh, I mean I know Jesus's prayer and uh, yeah. John seventeen is all about unity. Yeah. So part of me is like, no, God is not pleased yeah. with having the Black Church of Christ and yeah, the White yeah. Church of Christ. We should be making more of an effort to be unified. Yeah. But then the, on the cultural aspect, the segregation is it necessarily wrong? Well, if if, if you it depends. I mean, if you're talking about people excluding people no, from coming, no. that's one I'm talking about where you but feel if, more if, comfortable. If it's actually where you live yeah, and, you and where you hang out, that doesn't, listen to what I'm saying, that doesn't necessarily have to be a problem. Right. Just the culture existing in itself. There are some advantages to it, oh. uh, to, to that cultural experience. I think we've got a lot of uh, cleaning up to do interracially. We've got, got, got a lot of cleaning up to do within our churches. For example, um, I shouldn't start here because nobody else will probably get a chance to talk on the same anyway. The African American churches of Christ are light years behind the women's issue. Some stuff they won't even consider, mm -hmm. right? And it's stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Brother Hogan in, in the 1950s had women urchers. Mm -hmm. Vincent Hawkins and I brought that up at Figueroa. You know, we thought we were going to be running out on a rail, <laughs> right? Women ushers. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's. That's you serving the thought of men. Nah, bruh, really it ain't. You serving anybody. <laughs> and just being politely asking somebody to take a seat. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think that's one of our So struggles. it's a bigger issue besides just Yeah, so, so, with, so, within, so within the African-American church, that's our struggle. So let me, let me move on. Mm -hmm. Within some of the white churches, at least, in, in, Amy, maybe you can speak to this. I see this, this embrace of um, sort of a, a religious fundamentalism that sort of blocks any view of the need for the prophetic voice for social inclusion. So in other words, you know, we've got we to make sure that we, we vote right, and we've got to make sure that this person is in office mm -hmm. because this person will stand for the Lord, whether they've been married three times and tell 5,000 lies not, help me somebody. Mm -hmm. this, this person stands for our principles, right? It's like, no, you've got to kind of back up off that because Jesus not only critiqued the world of sinners, he had more of a critique of the religious establishment, mm -hmm. which I, I, I think, obviously there are exceptions. I just mm -hmm. talked about Don McLaughlin, who would be a huge exception. But just this consciousness of we got to protect this uh, religious fundamentalism, I think is a problem. You want to make a comment? Yeah, well, just to that point, I do think that there's so much fear right now. And, you know, so I think, I think this, like, holding on to, yeah, our fundamentalism and that sort of thing. Um, what I was going to say, though, is I've been a part, in my, my life, the two churches that I've been a part of have been churches that 
have been very proudly racially diverse. And on the one hand, I have to say, I mean, I was a child who grew up in a pretty diverse yeah. church in Los Angeles, and I am deeply, deeply blessed by that. It, it, from when I was young, yeah. we had black and white elders, and I had very close family friends who were black and white. And so, but I realize that both the church that I'm a part of now, where I've been for 20 years, and the church I grew up in, were really white churches yeah, of Christ were. with black members. That's exactly right. And the yeah. thing that I find myself dreaming about is, is, the, is there a way to really share leadership and share style? Mm -hmm. You know, because we've had some, some courageous, prophetic <clears throat> members of the Manhattan Church of Christ who have said, we love this church, black members, yeah. who said, we love this church, we love being here, but don't kid yourself, this is a white church. No, no, I understand. Like, don't, don't pretend and, and, and that you, this is, you Usually know, one culture will end up being one the church, dominant one, culture. One, one culture is the dominant You know David culture. Wilson, right? Uh, uh, yeah. So David Wilson is at a congregation where black members are predominantly black. They have a lot of white members. But that ain't no white church. And that's, that's a rocking And they're both black like church, really you know? be beautiful, strong yeah. heritages yeah. of faith. Yeah. So I, I, I don't want to let go. I don't want to let go of the good. Yeah. In in both in either heritage. But, but that, that that kind of synthesis you're talking about is a challenge. Pat, you have a comment. Yeah. I think we well, we have to go. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say how we view things really have to do our culture colors the way we see things, how we interpret things. So it's it's the same with, you know, when you're, um, when you hear a preacher speaking on something, yeah. it, how your your background, it, it affects how you interpret what he's saying. Sure, sure. Well, thank you. I'm sorry we have some technological difficulties. Um,